Welcome to Screw the Hierarchy, episode 48. This is Deb Falzoy, and today I'm talking about the why and the how of the Dignity at Work Act. This is relatively brand new legislation that we're trying to introduce for 2021, and I am talking with the bill author, Jerry Carbo, about the why of the bill, the how of the bill. He's going to get right into it. Are you ready to hear it? More after this. If you're a target of workplace abuse and want to break free of the grips of abusive power, you've found your place. I'm your host, Deb Falzoy, and the podcast begins now. I'm just going to give a, a, a little brief overview of why we're here. We're talking about the Dignity at Work Act, um, and Jerry's going to get more in-depth with that. Um, but for a little backgrounder on this, so when it comes to workplaces, about half of targets of illegal discrimination and workplace bullying reported internally. But since so many workplace cultures are toxic, so many higher ups in these cultures say they're against the idea of bullying, even discrimination, and then they do absolutely nothing to address it. Um, So it's this mentality of bullying exists, but just not here. Or they might conduct like a one-sided investigation or just talk to the two people involved and make a judgment or just simply conduct an investigation to understand if the employee has some kind of legit claim and then to reposition that claim as some kind of miscommunication and render it meritless. Um, And then the suffering mounts for targets. So we're talking about loss of job, loss of identity, loss of being able to keep up their lifestyle, you know, we've seen bankruptcy, we've seen divorce, toll on children, um, mistrust as a result of this, alcoholism, drug abuse, anxiety, depression, PTSD, mounting doctors, bills, which is um, compounded by people actually losing their health insurance as a result of losing their job. So when it comes to the courts, we know that workplace bullying isn't illegal unless it falls under discrimination or sexual harassment for the most part. And even then, It's rare that decisions are made on merits of cases. There's a huge asymmetry of power in workplaces and in courts that favors employers. Problems that are systemic get individualized and outcomes are usually confidential with non-disclosure agreements and settlements so that um, the, the employer and the abuser get protected and then it just leads to serial abuse. So we're basically in this rigged system where the law leaves these hierarchies untouched and the injustices untouched and it it gave rise to employment civil rights law in the first place. Um, In other words, the game, the rules of the game are, are skewed and not on the employee's side. So we need stronger laws to protect everyone, especially those who are in protected classes. So we're talking Um, or at least the the four biggest ones here are race, sex, age, and disability. And um, people suffer from abuse. These people suffer more from abuse at at work than others, the data shows, um, especially when they can't prove illegal discrimination or either way they're they're suffering. Um, And all plaintiffs want some kind of compensation, vindication, and organizational change for what they went through But vindication, actually all three of them are rarely part of the outcome because typically the employer calls the shots and abusers end up having absolutely no consequences. 
So we plan to introduce the Dignity at Work Act in as many states as possible in 2021. There actually is an active bill right now in Rhode Island. And this bill is designed to change the rules of this game so that employers will be held accountable and courts will favor employees more often because we will have more rights. So I'm here with Jerry Carbo, who's the president of the National Workplace Bullying Coalition. And he's also professor of management at the Grove College of Business at Shippensburg University in Pennsylvania. And in 2015, he was selected to be a member of the newly formed EEOC Select Task Force on the study of harassment in the workplace. He holds a PhD from Cornell's School of Industrial and Labor Relations and a JD from Penn State University. And he's a member of the State Bar of West Virginia. And his primary teaching areas are business and society, labor relations, and employment law. And he conducts research in, in workplace bullying and harassment, as well as socially sustainable business systems. Those are mouthful. So yes. can you start off, Terry, by um, talking more about this like need for workplace bullying le legislation and kind of the basics of the bill, what it's based on, where this all uh, how you came up with all of this. Yeah, so uh, to start with the the first uh, question, the, the need for workplace bullying legislation. Um, you know, Deb covered a lot of that in the introduction and really hit on the, the major points. But I just wanna take a little bit of a step back um, to some of the basics and sort of the overview of the US employment system and why we in particular in the United States are in such need of uh, this type of legislation, as well as other fundamental changes to our employment law system. But we have to understand that in the, in the United States, we have what's known as a negative rights system. And even within that negative rights system, we start with this underlying foundation of what's known as employment at will. And what employment at will means is that in essence, employers can do anything that they want for good reason, no reason, or even bad reasons. They can hire, they can fire, they can demote, they can promote, promote, they can dock people pay um, for any reason, unless a law has been passed to restrict their specific right to engage in that specific behavior. And that's what we mean by negative rights, a right to be free from specific behaviors. One of the big purposes of this bill is to reverse that view of the employment relationship and to begin to establish the idea of positive rights in the workplace. In this case, specifically the positive right to dignity in the workplace. This right, the right to dignity at work, is a uh, re uh, recognized human right under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights for over 60 years. And it's recognized as one of the fundamental core components of all human rights. And so what we're trying to say is we want to see that recognized in the US uh, uh, legal system as well. What we've done over the history of the US legal system is rather than expanding into those positive rights, um, we've taken a piecemeal negative rights approach to addressing issues that at some point in time, we as a society deemed to be immoral or unethical and decided that they should also be unlawful. We then prohibit those uh, behaviors. Over the years, we've seen that this employment at will, this underlying doctrine has been chipped away through things like workers' comp, unemployment compensation, the Fair Labor Standards Act, National Labor Relations Act, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADEA, Age Discrimination and Employment Act, OSHA, and FMLA. 
even for these laws, these very limited negative rights that employer employees have, every single one of these required a movement to even get passed. And almost from the moment that they've been passed, every single one has faced attack from the employer side lawyers, judges, and legislators. Unsurprisingly, as a result of that in our entire system, we lag behind the rest of the industrialized world in protecting workers. This is particularly the case in regards to what we're talking about today, psychological, emotional, health harming behaviors from coworkers, and especially in the United States from supervisors. These behaviors in the United States, from a legal standpoint, we refer to as harassment, are only unlawful here in the U.S., as Deb mentioned, if they're based upon protected statuses, race, color, national origin, religion, gender, age status over 40, or disability, and as a result of a recent Supreme Court case, sexual orientation, which is included within gender. The majority of harassment that we see, however, is not based upon any of these statuses. And as Deb mentioned, even when it is, the employee, the target is at a really disadvantaged position to prove their case, to prove that it's based upon a protected status, and to also jump through the hurdles that they have to jump through to win uh, any type of award or to just have the, the behavior even stop. And the tar those targets suffer greatly, as Deb also mentioned. Uh, for targets, we see loss of esteem, economic loss, stress, heart disease, high blood pressure, emotional distress, psychological harm, suicide ideation, suicide attempts, uh, workplace violence, and even homicide. Even with the status-based harassment being unlawful, many of the behaviors um, that are on, based upon a protected status still are not addressed. Employers don't address them, as uh, Deb has mentioned. The legal system is not set up to favor targets. It's set up to favor employers. Um, targets are much more likely to face retaliation when they file a complaint than to see the behavior stop or get any help from their HR departments, their unions, the EEOC, or the Human Rights Commission. Um, we see heightened standards of proving behavior is based upon a protected status in court decisions. We see heightened standards of what is severe or pervasive enough to bring a claim uh, in many uh, appellate court cases in particular. Um, and then we have this problem of this overly broad defense for employers that says, look, if employers, you sort of take these minimal steps, even though they may not do anything to address the problem, you almost get this immunity from any type of claim of harassment. So status-based harassment, even, uh, even though it's the minority of the uh, types of harassment and bullying we see, was such a problem that in 2015, as Deb mentioned, the EEOC commissioned a task force to study why we're still seeing this. It had been at that point 29 years since the Meritor Savings Bank case, and they brought a group of us together to explore what's going on, what can we do, how can we handle this differently, and in 2016 they issued a report, um, the uh, EEOC commissioners did, from based upon uh, uh, evidence presented for, by this task force, and they also issued enforcement guidelines. The report's great. I recommend that everybody go and read it at the EEOC website. The enforcement guidelines, unfortunately, were hung up in the changing administration, and they've never, as a result, become passed. Um, you know, so the, again, those were issued in 2016, and we all know that at that point we saw this change uh, in administrations, and they've just sort of uh, lingered and do not at least technically exist. They went through public comment. That was as far as they got. 
Um, so what we're left with without this law is we're left with American employees who are uh, not guaranteed dignity in their workplace. Millions of employees every day in the United States facing bullying and harassment. The majority of these uh, behaviors are not unlawful. Um, for those that are unlawful, it's extremely difficult to prove that they are. And um, employers who could play a huge role in putting an end to these behaviors, they just have no incentive to do so. And so they don't. And so this is why we need a fundamental reform of our employment law system in the United States. And the Dignity at Work Act is just one model bill that we hope that can uh, begin such a reform. Can you go over kind of the basics of the bill to help people understand like what actual protections they will have once it passes? Yeah, definitely. So I wanna uh, maybe start with um, the foundation of the bill a little bit. So, so the Dignity at Work Act is built from an extensive review of US jurisprudence, international laws, and the experiences of targets. We, we refer to it internally as DAWA, and you may see DAWA out there quite a bit on our uh, posts and uh, the different information that we use. But DAWA is meant to fill the gaps that we know that exist in the EEO laws that only address status-based claims. And even when they do that, they do so in a largely ineffective manner. The act is drafted from lessons from those EEO laws and the, the jurisprudence around those, as well as things like workers' comp law and tort law, including intentional infliction of emotional distress here in the US. It's also built around an extensive study of legislation, including the first sort of anti-bullying legislation that was passed in Sweden, legislation that was passed in Quebec, France, Belgium, and then how bullying is handled in other countries through common law, such as in the UK and in Germany. And finally, DAWA was based upon, uh, it's now been 25 years since I've been working in, or it's 25 years of my career that I've been working in uh, uh, studying workplace harassment and bullying. Um, uh, my experiences in, experiences as an HR manager, an attorney and consultant, and extensive studies of Target's experiences. And then it's also based upon bringing experts together like Deb, um, other members of our uh, um, board as well, uh, Sue Young, um, our founding member, uh, Bev Peterson, um, uh, Catherine Matice, um, uh, Janice White, um, uh, Chuba Obele and um, uh, Wilma DeSoto and, and others. And so it's really a collaborative effort and, and it's constantly improving. So what does it look like right now? Um, well, actually, first of all, you know, what happens, how would you sue under this bill? Well, let me see something first. Yeah, so right now what we see in the legislation is it, first of all, does establish the right to uh, dignity in the workplace. And then it also sort of to follow the way of our US system, it also presents a negative right. And that negative right is the right to be free from workplace bullying. It addresses all different forms of workplace bullying uh, from organizational bullying to relational bullying to personal bullying, bullying by supervisors, by coworkers, by third parties. Um, and in essence, it, it expands the definition of bullying around our legal definition of harassment while, fully, while, while filling in the gaps that we've seen in harassment. So, um, and in essence, it makes those behaviors unlawful in the workplace and 
it requires employers to take steps to eliminate those behaviors in the workplace. Um, can you talk like about the intent piece of it and the, um, or skipping around here, uh, what kind of harms that someone will be able to sue against besides health harm? Yeah, so um, I'll address each of those in turn. So, so one of the things, one of those gaps that we know is that especially when we're talking about specific intent. Um, and, and that's sort of a legal term that we use that says, it's not just intent to engage in a behavior, but it's an intent to harm. When we see that uh, a legal requirement of showing specific intent, we know that uh, plaintiffs are almost always going to lose. It's an impossible hurdle to, to show. Um, we've recognized in terms of even a specific intent, intent in EEO laws, that targets can't prove this. And that's why we have the McDonnell Douglas standard that says, no, employers, you have the information, you're going to have to show that you didn't engage in this behavior willingly. Um, and that's when we talk about um, disparate treatment cases. Here we're dealing with more harassment and bullying cases. And what we know is the intent is also impossible to, to to prove there. So what we've done is we've eliminated the requirement of intent and we've made that requirement either the intent or effect of harming the target. Because what we're really trying to do is we're trying to prevent that harm to targets. Um, in terms of what that harm is, well, first and foremost, we know from years of jurisprudence and harassment, the environment itself is a form of harm experiencing bullying itself is a form of harm. And litigants or targets are able to bring a claim under DAWA once they've experienced that. We're not requiring this showing of physical harm or psychological harm. In fact, we wanna see claims brought before that. The EEOC was really clear about this in the uh, uh, Select Task Force report on workplace harassment. We wanna end these behaviors before they cause debilitating and or permanent harm. And typically what we see is with workplace bullying, it doesn't end until that debilitating permanent harm has occurred. And typically then it ends by the, the target leaving the workplace. And so this, this bill says that's not acceptable. We need to put an end to these behaviors before they start ideally the employer's responsibility, but as soon as they start, we want to be able to put an end to those as soon as possible. And uh, we do that in, in two ways. One, by saying this is the harm. Bullying itself is the harm. And the second way we do that is by how we've set up how individuals can bring a complaint forward. Can you talk more about that? So if I, so if the bill were law today and I, you know, was bullied and wanted to sue, what what are my options for for that? And what does the process look like if if it were law? Yeah, definitely. So um, now our our legislation, DAWA, you know, we've put a lot of work into it as a group, and, and we uh, wholeheartedly believe in every component of it. But we also understand that when legislation gets passed in each state, it will differ and it will vary by state to state, and there will be amendments made. But I'm going to talk about how the bill, how it's written right now, how it would work. 
And if it were passed how we have it written right now, the expectation would be that every state would establish an agency or that they would take an existing agency and have that agency in charge of investigating as well as adjudicating claims of workplace bullying. Um, this agency is modeled after labor courts that we see across the globe. And one of the advantages of these labor courts across the globe, they oftentimes handle complaints that allow the employer and employee to um, preserve the relationship. They handle them early enough that the employee doesn't feel like they have to leave the job. They handle them early enough that the employer hasn't taken extra steps to retaliate. And so they resolve the claim early on. And that's what we want to see from these commissions. They'll resolve the claim early on. They'll investigate them. If the plaintiff target decides that they would also want them adjudicated through this agency, they can have them adjudicated in sort of a mini internal type of trial, like we see with a number of state human rights commissions in the United States as well. However, at the same time, we understand that targets may not be um, uh, receptive to agency uh, determinations. They may have problems with investigators during agency determinations. So much like our EEO laws, the uh, Dignity at Work Act also provides a private right of action. So litigants will be able to, or targets would be able to file suit in their state courts on their own, either after filing with the commission or without filing with the commission. And in that case, we've also suggested a three-year statute of limitations to give litigants plenty of time to uh, think about whether or not they want to file to, to get sort of their, uh, to make a very big important decision in their lives. And then if they so choose to litigate. And I would add also one of, we've addressed those non-disclosure agreements and pre-interest arbitration as well. We don't, uh, the law, DAWA as it's written, prohibits pre-dispute arbitration agreements and also prohibits NDAs. Um, and just to actually focus on that agency piece of it. So one of the reasons that was designed that way was because the legal system is such a pay to play system and there's discrimination and even access to legal representation. So this would give low income workers a way to have an, an avenue to sue. Yes, exactly. We, you know, again, this is a piece of model legislation. We, we believe in what we've written. Um, there's no doubt about that. And we've put extensive time into writing it. Um, but we also know there might be other pieces of legislation that might work. But one of the fundamental things that we don't believe any piece of legislation will work unless it provides is an avenue for every target, an avenue for every worker. And that means that the finances should not stand in the way. It means that legal procedural issues should not stand in the way. People don't need to be legal experts to bring their claims forward. And so this is meant to open the door to every target of workplace bullying, having a path to remedy that situation in the workplace to make themselves whole. Um, my last question before, before we get into the chat um, so people can comment with their questions and we'll answer them live or Jerry will answer them live. So I, some of the feedback or, you know, that I've heard about this bill is that, you know, it's not going to eradicate workplace bullying or it's going to be really hard to prove like sexual harassment. Um, and I usually respond, you know, well, no, bill, no law eradicates an issue and, um, even with sexual harassment law, if you talk to you know people who were sexually harassed before 
sexual harassment law, even though we saw with the Me Too movement that by no means is sexual harassment has it gone away, but work cultures have, have we've moved the needle with work cultures when it comes to sexual harassment. So yeah. I just wanted to see what else that you see as like a per, a, an overall big picture purpose of the Dignity at Work Act um, and just the hope for like cultural change of what. Yeah. So I think, you know, uh, a couple of things, I have some details to, to answer that, but a couple of things right up front. I mean, one is, as I mentioned, we want this to sort of also change the tone of how we look at the employment relationship. This would really be one of the first laws that talks about a true positive rights approach, right? Providing this right to dignity in the workplace. And one of the things that we learned in the United Kingdom, uh, probably 15 years ago now, I'm going to say, without knowing the exact date, might have been more like 10 years ago, uh, in the United Kingdom, they had a push for a very similar law and also based upon dignity. And that law never passed. However, the movement around it for the, really transformed the employment relationship in the UK to a focus on positive rights and dignity in the workplace. So if nothing else, what we hope is that this movement will get us there. Now, in terms of DAWA specifically, um, you're exactly right. No bill, no law is going to address every form or type of workplace bullying um, or eliminate all forms of workplace bullying or harassment, I should say. But our hope is that this bill does address all of those forms. So it'll create a uh, cause of action for all possible targets. Um, the bill is not a magic bullet. It's not gonna end a workplace bullying overnight. No bill will do so. Um, and in fact, as one of my dissertation committee members, Lance Compa, uh, professor at Cornell's ILR program, uh, has said, or has argued, is that in order to enforce any employment rights in the United States, really, we really need what he calls a three-legged stool. First, we need strong laws with strong enforcement. Right now, we lack both. And DAWA directly addresses that first leg of the stool, strong law, and we call for strong enforcement of it. However, we also need the two other uh, legs of the stool as well, one being a strong labor movement to stand up for the rights of workers. And we also need good employers who are incentivized to assure these rights in the workplace. So part of the work of the National Workplace Bullying Coalition, and probably the majority of our work, focuses on these last two legs building a movement within the labor movement to take on the issue of workplace bullying and also influencing employers and giving employers the tools to take the steps to address all forms of workplace bullying. And again, you know, just in closing, I would say DAWA is, it's a form of model legislation, meaning that you know it's still being shaped, it's still being crafted. We know it will change when it goes through state legislative processes, there might be amendments, there might be changes here or there, but what we do believe is that there are at least five major components of DAWA that have to exist for any of these laws to be effective. One, addressing all types of workplace bullying, status-based, status-blind, relationship, personal, organizational, supervisory, coworker, all different forms, DAWA does that provide access to a complete remedy for all targets. That means access and also remedy, make whole remedies, it does that. Hold accountable and incentivize employers to eliminate all forms of bullying and to take all steps necessary to eliminate workplace bullying. Right now we have this defense for employers when we talk about harassment, 
from a 1999 Supreme Court case. And we want to act like, look, we haven't learned anything. We don't know what else to do. Employers are hamstrung. We can't expect more. This research is decades old at this point in time. There are things that we know employers can do to address it. DAWA requires those. Stop bullying before the harm becomes permanent or severe. And again, while still providing remedy for those who do suffer that permanent and severe damage, DAWA does that. And one last thing, assure the positive right to dignity in the workplace for all workers. And it does that as well. Um, and so I think accomplishing any of those things would be a huge first step, a huge step uh, at all. And um, there's no perfect legislation. There never will be. Um, as soon as any legislation is passed, I can guarantee defense side employment attorneys will be picking it apart to find loopholes. Uh, um, employer side judges will be making decisions to minimize the impact of the law and legislators on the employer side will be looking to um, uh, amend the law. Um, but that's why it's so important to start with a strong act uh, that addresses all of those components. And just to point out too that um, I'm just looking at notes here from that the book Rights on Trial that talks about what what um, the effectiveness of discrimination law has actually been in the last 50 plus years. And it says that some, to quote them, some 29% of, of employees said they reported the incident to it uh, to a supervisor. And then it goes down a lower number, no lower percentages to, you know, from like company uh, complaining at higher levels, um, taking the, the case forward to the point of only 3% said they sued the company or their coworkers. So we're not talking about this issue, like opening up the floodgates of, of litigation. Um, it's really, a lot of people don't want to sue. They just want, you know, to feel like they're working in a safe and fair and healthy work environment. So that's, you know, just wanted to make that point about what, yeah. what the reality is with the number of people who Will probably sue under this law. And it's a, it's a great point. And, and um, Samuel S. Stryker is known for, for writing uh, about rickshaws and Cadillacs in the U.S. employment system. And in essence, his argument is, look, we have this system where you're either a big winner or you're a big loser. And the big winners are very few and far between, almost like a lottery system. And so they get the Cadillacs and everybody else gets the rickshaw. And, and that's a very expensive system. And what we see in other countries are labor courts that, again, handle these disputes right up front. They handle them quickly and they're less expensive. There aren't rickshaws and Cadillacs. They're just sort of level, you know, uh, damages to get to make employees whole, get them back into the workplace and, you know, to avoid more intense disputes. And those systems run much more efficiently than what the U.S. employment law system does. And so really, by taking these steps, states can save a lot of money. Um, you know, there might be some initial upfront costs with that commission, but in the long run, they will save money as well. Um, all right, so I'm going to take, well, first, I'm going to say that if you, anyone wants to get involved, because we are trying to create a movement, create noise across the country, because that's what has affected change in the past with other issues, um, you can go to dignityatworkact.org. You can find out more information and you can join a state, your state's team. Um, we have a 
ton of them uh, being formed right now, but we still have more to be formed or, you know, more, there's always more help that can be uh, given. So um, if you go to dignityatworkact.org or email us at info at dignityatworkact.org, we can, you know, get you, get you connected with the right people. Um, so the first question here in the comments is, is there special training for the investigators of claims of abuse? Yeah, well, um, I don't know that anyone in our organization is currently offering that. I spent a large part of my career actually training investigators. I will tell you it is a critical need. Um, what I see more and more is rather than investigating the way they should be investigated, that um, more and more employers are hiring their attorneys to engage in the investigations. And rather than investigating, they are setting up for defense. And so what they're doing is they're building their defense. Um, they're questioning people out of order. You know, we have sort of a basic standard that should uh, take place, which is you should first uh, uh, get a full statement from the complainant, and then you should question the accused. And only then should you go beyond and what I have seen over the past five to 10 years is more and more employers are actually building a defense by uh, questioning witnesses, badgering witnesses even, uh, to set up their sort of story and then coming back at the complainant, uh, not as an investigator, but almost as uh, almost like a uh, cop questioning them in, you know, the investigation room or the, uh, uh, you know, down at the police station. So um, while it's not something that we have taken the steps to specifically do in our organization, it's definitely on in our scope of things to do. And it's definitely, um, there's definitely investigation training out there, so. Um, next question is, what are some thoughts on associated penalties slash sanctions or enforcement? So, you know, the, the main thing that we've done is to make sure that we have make whole remedies. And so what I mean by that is we have economic remedies. So for any lost wages, we have compensatory damages, which would be for any psychological harm, any medical bills, any types of uh, those types of damages. And then we provide for punitive damages as well. And those punitive damages are meant to provide the incentive for employers to prevent harm. I do think that there are also you know, possibilities of other sanctions being taken uh, or being implemented in this bill. Uh, Jerry Spence, uh, you know, a um, famous uh, attorney who um, represented Karen Silkwood, if you're familiar with the, uh, the movie, Meryl Streep movie from years ago in the actual Silkwood case, um, uh, wrote a book several years ago that talked about sort of a death penalty for executives. And the death penalty for executives was if, you know, if you're convicted of any of these or your company's convicted of any of these, you can't be on a board and you can't be an executive of any other company. And I think some of those personal types of penalties also might be things to explore, but they're not things that we've done here as of yet. Um, the next question, actually, this is the last question, so people can feel free to add more before we answer this last question, um, or we can continue to answer questions in the chat and the comments. Um, it says three-year statute of limitation for recovery helps, but will the tribunal provide someone who can articulate a target's case if they are too damaged to face the bullies slash employer in the mini trial? Yeah, so... 
in the in the commission you would definitely be represented during the um during the uh agency administration of the case or agency adjudication of the case the way that would work is the way that the eeoc currently handles it so you could have the investigator who would represent you you could also have an external attorney if you decided to hire one on your own i think one of the things that i would hope to see as i mentioned this labor movement component of it is that um, labor unions are using their attorneys to represent members uh, in front of the the commission um, even if you opt out of the agency adjudication, much like we see with the EEOC today, is they can also adjudicate the case on your behalf. So they could actually be your attorney in state court, or if we get this as a federal law, in federal court. So um, there would always be someone available to represent you. You would have a right to representation. Um, and through the administrative process, you'd really be on equal footing with the employer in that mini trial. Those who opt to go the litigation route, you know, that would again become at least a bit of pay to play because the, the more you can afford in court costs, discovery, all those types of things, the better position, of course, you would be in. Um, there's one more question. If we don't feel like our unions are responding, what's the next step? I've been experiencing disability discrimination for over a year by my principal and district director over counseling. I'm a school counselor, the only one in the building. Um, I have had loads of physical evidence of that in addition to HIV documentation. Are those separate things? Is HIV a grievance through the union or would it wrap into an investigation of the disability Thank you for doing this. Yeah, so a couple of things there. So one, um, unions are meant to protect your rights, whether those are uh, listed in your collective bargaining agreement or those are your employment rights. So my position is if your union is arbitrarily or ineffectively representing your claims uh, for disability discrimination or disability harassment, that they are failing failing in their duty of fair representation to you. That's a legal duty that they have to fairly represent you. Um, and so if they're failing that, especially if they're doing so arbitrarily or discriminatorily, not meaning discriminating uh, based upon a protected status, but just treating you differently than they do other members of the bargaining unit, then you have the right to file a complaint for that failure of the duty of fair representation. If you are a private sector employee, that complaint would go to the National Labor Relations Board. If you are a public sector employee, it would go to the State Labor Relations Board and whatever state. Um, further, if your contract has a clause in it that has an EEO clause or an equal rights clause, then that means that you now have a contractual case as well. And then your, uh, your union even has a stronger obligation to represent you. And so if you have that in your contract, uh, contract and it can be a clause that says we'll follow all EEO laws then you should start by filing a grievance under your contract against your employer and you should inform your union that they have to represent you during that grievance process um, and then the third thing that you can do is you can really help us to help labor unions to understand what they should be doing uh, in regards to bullying and harassment and discrimination by joining our organization 
and joining specifically our collective bargaining and concerted activity team, which is directly focused on really pushing unions to do what they should be doing uh, in order to address these issues. And by the way, you're not alone in thinking your union's not addressing it, whoever asked the question. Um, that is very common and it's, it's a huge issue that we need to work on. And again, it's that second leg of the stool that Lance Compa talks about. There's a couple of follow-ups. Um, so to the union question, um, would that cover discriminatory treatment of union caucuses? A DFR? Yes. So like if an individual who's in a caucus is being treated differently by their union membership or not being represented because they're in that caucus, that would 100% be a failure of the duty of fair representation. And that claim should be brought forward. That claim sh should be brought forward even if the person doesn't particularly feel harmed because the way our system works in addition to being negative rights, the only way we expand employee rights is by plain bringing cases forward and those being expanded through litigation. So I would hope that whoever's um, asking that, that they would bring a claim forward. And then as a follow-up to when you say grievance, do you mean union-specific grievance? Yeah, so under the collective bar, any collective bargaining agreement, you have a grievance process. And so that grievance process probably is a first step where you are supposed to approach the supervisor directly. Um, and it's actually when it says you are supposed to, it's you and your union representatives it's, that are supposed to do this. And then there are multiple steps through that process. Um, when we're talking about an EEO complaint, it's a, uh, it's a good idea to at least take those first steps of the process, the first one or two through the grievance process. And then you might be backed into the decision, do I continue here or do I just go to the EEOC? And by the time you get there, you've gathered evidence. And hopefully at that point, your union will help you to go to the EEOC or your state human rights uh, commission. And then a follow-up to the um, three-year statute of limitation question. Mm -hmm. Um, she says recourse for bullying after target is bullied out of workplace question mark i.e subpar references following nervous breakdown following years of stellar reviews uh sanctions against that considered and then also yes. libel is obvious through email slash reference would this bill cover that is bullying yes so first of all the libel and all the treatment prior to leaving the workplace, that all falls under the specific definition of bullying. The other part of DAWA that we didn't talk about though, is the very strong anti-retaliation provision. And so actions taken against you after you file a complaint, after you make known that you're upset, after you leave your employment, um, even by subsequent employers or others, those are specifically covered. And in essence, what we've adopted under DAWA is sort of the same sort of zero tolerance uh, for retaliation. We want retaliation to be handled swiftly, for the penalties to be severe, and those under DAWA would not only provide for um, compensatory damages, but also with retaliation, clearly punitive damages. Retaliation is a reality though. I just have to put that warning out. Most people who file any type of complaint will experience some level of retaliation. The good news to that is it's also the most successful form of litigation under the EEO laws. And we think we'll even be stronger under DAWA. 
And just to clarify what current retaliation is, that's within the scope of discrimination, correct? Yes. Yeah, so all the EEO laws have specific um, anti-retaliation provisions as well. So if you report a claim in good faith, you don't even have to have a legitimate, if you report a claim in good faith and it turns out that there's no underlying legal claim, even if you're retaliated against for that, you're still protected under the EEO laws. Again, you don't have to know what the law is. You can be mistaken and file a complaint. We want you to be able to do that and not be retaliated against. And so if you are filing a complaint or participating in a complaint or objecting to what you think is unlawful behavior, you have specific protections under the federal EEO laws, Title VII, the ADA, the ADEA. Great, thanks, Terry. I don't see any new questions in the um, comments, so we can stop here. Thank you so much. I hope this was helpful for people. Um, like I said, we're trying to make a national movement out of this. We want workplace bullying or workplace abuse to be a household term so people can, you know, they don't have to feel isolated and they can understand more of what's happening and kind of detach from what they're going through, but still um, get protections for what they're going through so they don't have to incur this like snowball of, of losses that typically happens after abuse at work. Um, like I said, anyone can visit dignityatworkact.org and get involved. Feel free to, um, oh, we have one more. Um, okay. We'll just wait for, oh, okay. Let's see here. Um, a follow-up to the union questions is good to know I've done that piece. My union documented my verbal statements and meetings. I also have email documentation. I've asked my building union reps three and our di district union rep who our grievance officer is more than once, but no one will tell me who it is. Wow, that's a per se DFR. I mean, that's a, they, they can't hide the grievance process from you and the grievance process belongs to members, not this sort of third party entity that we sometimes think of as our union. So that grievance process, you have that right it doesn't belong to the union entity, the 501c4 or 501c3. So they are they are violating your rights under either your state labor relations law or the National Labor Relations Act, depending where you're at. And, um, and that is a definite DFR that should be pursued. Duty, a failure of duty of fair representation. Great, thanks so much, Jerry. So um, if anyone has any further questions, drop them in the comments and we'll we'll comment back um, or reach out to us directly at info at dignityatworkact.org. Um, and get involved if you're interested, because we, we would love to, uh, like I said, creating noise around this. So thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Screw the Hierarchy. If you feel like you need more help, I have a free guide to recovery steps at dignitytogether.org targets and a sign up for daily boosts through your inbox at the same place. All of the content in this podcast was created and edited by yours truly, Deb Falzoy, and the music you heard is from Kevin McLeod. All right, have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you on the next episode. Bye.